And then I think there's also this broader narrative amongst uh, sections of the left, really kind of anti-patriotic, anti-Western ideas that have that have flown through for years in the in the academic world about how there's basically nothing good about the West, how the world is going terribly, um, and how we're so oppressive and sexist and racist and homophobic, and it just become so key to their identity and the way they view the world that it's very hard for them to look at the facts and look at the data and say, well, maybe people aren't as racist, sexist or homophobic as, as you might think they are. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of E2 Review. I'm Max Klinger, the host of the show. This week's guest is Matthew Lesh, who's the head of research at the Adam Smith Institute, which is a well-known political think tank. He's also the author of a recent book called Democracy in a Divided Australia and just generally appears on TV and in print as a social and political commentator. That's it in terms of the introduction. As usual, if you could give this a good rating and a review if you enjoyed it, that apparently helps people find the show. And also check out this as a YouTube video if you want, along with all of our other podcasts. They're all available on our YouTube channel. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Okay, thanks for listening. Okay, so I'm here with Matthew Lesh, who's the head of research at the Adam Smith Institute. He's also a pretty well-known commentator. He's literally just been on TV, or was it radio? Just radio, now? radio. Yeah. Face, face for radio, as they say. Yeah, <laughs> what were you talking about there? So we were just doing um, radio, BBC Radio 2, Jeremy Vine Show. Yeah. Uh, so the big issue, at least today, has been that Nicky Morgan has announced a review into whether or not the licence fee, the BBC licence fee, should require... Um, a criminal prosecution for non-payment. Yeah. Um, and the government's looking at changing the BBC funding model as well as getting rid of this criminal element to it. And and full props to the BBC. Uh, they feel like, for the sake of impartiality, they have to get on someone who's basically um, trying to put forward a case that would perhaps not be in their direct yeah. financial interests. What do you think about the people who just... I mean, there's a lot of people on social media and so on who just obsessed with the fact that the BBC is too biased now to be considered a neutral, impartial broadcaster. What's your view on that? So my view is a little bit biased you know, on this by the fact that I, I come from Australia where we have basically a, the the low-quality Xerox version of the BBC. It's called the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And if you think that the BBC is biased, you should watch half an hour of ABC programming. It's it's, Particularly its news and current affairs is just totally, totally um, not... Well, I mean, there's two issues. One, it's much lower quality than the BBC. um, And it's actually just a lot more bias and they just have no recognition of their bias here. They, they think they're completely by providing everything from the social alternative perspective to the uh, far left greens perspective they think that they're providing a full diversity and spectrum of views yeah. um, so when I come watch the BBC my view is well you know it could be worse when it comes to bias I think it was pretty disappointing the other night to see that they literally their stage on Brexit night looked like the EU flag yeah, yeah, I, I think people have a lot of genuine complaints about their coverage of Brexit I think the issue is, and, and in some ways the same issue with the ABC, yeah. is you end up creating an effective kind of media bubble. And we know the kind of people who live in London, who work in media, are going to be um, far to the left of the national average. They're almost only going to vote to remain. Um, they, they probably went to university, if not one of the, the top universities, that creates a certain mould of person. And that becomes them, whether they like or not, as much as they try to get on different perspectives, and some of their presenters I think are very good and very professional um, as much as they try, it's very hard for them to pr- present a diversity of views. I think there's been this effort to move, uh, for example, moving a lot of BBC up to Salford in Manchester. Does that really work? Probably not, because you've got the same bubble in central <laughs> yeah. Manchester, and you just move a bunch of people who would have been in London and now they're in Manchester just thinking and doing things in exactly the same way. So it's not clear to me that geographically moving it somewhere else, other than costing a lot of money, um, 
really achieves very much. So I think you're going to get those natural biases within public broadcasting as professional as they might try to be. And that is is a case for basically saying, well, if people don't think that you know, it represents them particularly well, if they think it's excessively southeastern in its disposition, then of course you shouldn't have to pay for it. Yeah, that seems to make sense to me. So actually, on that note, I guess this would be a logical time to talk about your book, which is Democracy in a Divided Australia. Yeah. So, I mean, that seems to fit in quite nicely with what we're talking about at the BBC in terms of just a complete divide in terms of outlooks across the population and different bubbles. So can you give a broad overview of what it is you talk about in the book? Sure. So my book basically takes a lot of the literature that's been developed around Charles Murray coming apart in the US, combining with some of the work David Goodhart has done in the UK with somewheres and anywheres, and tries to apply that to the Australian context. So looking at how the new political divides have come to fruition in Australia. And I wrote this book um, largely in about, well, it was now two years ago, 2018, um, as we were kind of thinking about the new political year that was going on. And, and basically, I dived into a lot of the, the data in Australia. It's not as, there's not as much as you might ideally like, but there's, there's really good election surveys where you can see over time this big divergence in views um, between effectively the, the metropolitan class and the inner city class. So, so what I've called inners or um, a David Hyde will call anywhere. It's basically people who are higher educated, have good um, jobs in the inner city, earning high incomes, work in some kind of professional service, sometimes government as well, civil service, media, uh, public media. These people, basically life is, is, is going pretty well, more or less, for them, um, particularly financially, and then they become more interested in non-financial issues like climate change or um, women's rights or sexual identity issues um, and what you might put social science would call post-materialist issues, which really comes to the fore when basically people's material needs are more or less met. And yeah. for this cohort, um, traditionally in the Australian context and even the UK context, it's a very middle-class cohort, would have voted to the right. So you had a, this historical situation where more or less across uh, Western democracies, the people who were the middle class, the higher educated, um, higher income yeah. group in society um, voted to Conservative Party or Liberal Party in Australia. We've seen this real transformation where that group has basically feels like the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party no longer represent them. I think Brexit has really... Um, defined a lot of that here, but in fact it goes back even much further than Brexit. I think this is kind of a 50-year transformation, not a, not a five-year transformation. Yeah. And now those people are increasingly voting to the left. Um, they vote, in Australia, they vote for the Green Party. Over here, they'll vote for the Lib Dems or, or for Labor. And that's why you see particularly strong results for Labor in North London, let's say, yeah. um, where you have a quite highly educated professional service sector, young, that kind of cohort. I see that group as as the one sector of society, and then you've got the other sector of society, the other sector of the divided Australia or divided Britain, is what I call the outers, people who in Australian context live in the outer suburbs, regional Australia in the UK tend to live not in the big cities, in the, they live in towns and, and where the majority of people live, at least in this country. And that cohort basically is their identity on something a little bit different. It's more about the place where they grew up, the place where they belonged their whole life, they're far less likely to be mobile, to move to the moved for university or, or moved for, for work, um, they're, they're less educated, end up working in lower income jobs um, and, and have fewer kind of practical opportunities in our modern world. Now, I don't necessarily buy the view that these people are you know, oppressed by the system or that you know, they're financially um, struggling day to day. It's not that they're doing terribly, it's just that material concerns are a bit more important to them. They're traditionally concerned about things like healthcare, schools, and the economy and ensuring their continued job security. Yeah. And that cohort 
is one that's really very much disconnected from this kind of inner city worldview, and particularly when it comes to the issues that they're interested in. So the BBC will spend hours and hours and hours talking about issues like climate change again and again and again. And, and, and generally across society, you can see clear majority of people think climate change is an important issue. That's not something that's really affecting people day to day. But for the BBC worldview, for the inner, inner suburban worldview, that is just the essential issue of our time. Yeah. So you see this huge divide in our politics, and then it complicates our politics as well. Because both parties effectively are trying to simultaneously appeal what is financially um, kind of suburban cohort, but also this working class cohort, and they've got to try to build an electoral coalition between the two of them. It tends to be the left that has struggled more with this. Um, Jeremy Corbyn kind of got, to an extent, squeezed. Although the Lib Dems didn't do very well, they got a bit of a boost in their vote, which took a lot of vote away from Labor during the election. Um, And that means that they are just effectively representing a very small cohort of, of relatively mobile, highly educated people and not representing a broader constituency out there. We saw the same kind of thing happen in the Australian election last year where Scott Morrison had this shock election victory um, against Labor and a lot of his success was he probably actually swings against him in the Australian political terms uh, in the inner city, but big swings towards um, the Liberal Party and the National Party in outer suburban areas and, and more conservative Queensland areas that you might traditionally have expected be more Labor-supporting areas in the Australian context. And it's because effectively he managed to speak to people in a way that made them think that he really did care about their issues and, and their concerns, which yeah. Labor had struggled to by focusing in on climate change and um, sex, sexual and gender issues and all that other kind of stuff that isn't really as much their concern. So why do you think... Because, I, I mean, I know your book's focused on Australia, but obviously has relevance across kind of the Western world, so, yeah. or maybe even beyond the Western world, but why do you think we've got to a point where that divide has emerged now? Because it seems to me like things like gender and sexual issues or racial issues, they're obviously they're important, but at the same time they're, to a large extent the least important they've ever been in the sense that there's the least racial prejudice and there's the least sexism. And not that's not to say that those things don't exist, but at the point at which they've become least... They've had, they have the least impact societally. There's a kind of myopic focus on those things in a certain section of the left, and that's something which a lot of the media, kind of broadcasting sector and academia stuff has bought into, but large parts of the rest of society hasn't. So why do you think that's happened now? What is it that's given rise to that divide? And why have certain groups jumped onto that particular set of beliefs so strongly at this point in time when others have just felt completely alienated by them? So I think it's actually a huge success of that um, highly educated inner city demographic to basically spread their their relatively liberal values when it comes to race or gender or sexuality or or women's rights and the the role of women. We actually live in overwhelmingly, um, particularly in the West, liberal countries when it comes to these perspectives and they've effectively more or less won the debate and um, there's obviously some, still some holdouts but quite broadly against both amongst both inners and outers you'll find that people are relatively progressively disposed um, I, I think this has become such an issue it really among inners and outers so as in I think I think both inners and outers are both I mean both socially quite liberal yeah, yeah. if you ask about an issue like abortion or euthanasia or same-sex marriage or yeah. whether or not you think your neighbor should um, you'd be concerned if your neighbour was someone of a different race. Yeah. You'll find right across Western democracies the fact that the vast majority of people exactly, are yeah. extremely liberal. Yeah. So I think in as now as a quite socially liberal, I'd say they're culturally very different. So if you look at issues like patriotism or um, criminal uh, crime and, and justice, that you can find some very big differences between in as and outers. Right. Um, I, I mean, in terms of where I date all this kind of transformation to, I'd probably put it back to. Um, the kind of key moment, particularly in, in Australia, um, 
and, and America, less so in the UK, is the Vietnam War protest. So you really saw this ev evolution of this new demographic. So we had the expansion of higher education um, beginning around that kind of period where more people were, were going to university, getting um, exposed to liberal ideas, becoming this kind of liberal metropolitan group. And then you had that demographic develop and, and really come to substantially influence society from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, and, and really infiltrate both major parties in Australia, UK, US, right. and have that huge socially liberalising influence. I think in many ways for the better. I, I think sometimes, though, there's a lack of willingness to basically accept success. Mm. If you've set up an organisation to fight for gay rights or women's rights, you, you don't sh suddenly shut down when things are going well. You have to keep in claiming like there's the hugest issue in history, and then you get more and more focused on the, the fewer and fewer cases where there's, there's problems because you need to justify your existence, you have to have something to talk about. Yeah. And then I think there's also this broader narrative amongst uh, sections of the left, really kind of anti-patriotic, anti-Western ideas that have, that have flown through for years in the, in the academic world about how there's basically nothing good about the West, how the world is going terribly, um, and how we're so oppressive and sexist and racist and homophobic. And it's just become so key to their identity and the way they view the world that it's very hard for them to look at the facts and look at the data and say, well, maybe people aren't as racist, sexist or homophobic as, as you might think they are. And in fact, if you really want to find people, places where people are racist, sexist and homophobic, it's probably not in the Anglo-Saxon democracies. Yeah. Um, it's, it's places in the Middle East, it's, it's places in Asia where people still are, quite frankly, a lot more traditionalist and a lot more conservative in their disposition. There doesn't seem to be a lot of concern about that um, yeah. amongst Western liberals. They really want to focus in on their own countries and their, their own country's problems rather than thinking more broadly about how you can spread liberal views more globally. Yeah, I mean, that's something which has struck me as particularly strange, actually, is we've got to a point where, like you said, vast ways of society are pretty tolerant. Historically speaking, they're the most tolerant, more or less the most tolerant society has ever been. And that applies, of course, like you say, in its announcers. So something like the Brexit vote, no doubt there are some Brexiteers who have unsavoury views, but also there are millions of them who don't. Yeah. Um, and millions of them would be just as put off by things like racism and sexism as hardcore liberal Remainer types. Um, but the tendency of the Remain side of the debate has been to double down and just to insist more vocally as we go forward that things are, if not getting worse, at least as bad or very bad in terms of sex and gender and so on, or racism. Um, Whilst at the same time, that section of society seems particularly averse to addressing issues like homophobia across parts of like the Middle East, for example, like you say. And so I think, do you think that there's a disconnect between the intense focus on the need to cut out any form of racism and sexism, which is a valid objective in itself, but at the same time being unbelievably unwilling to discuss the very glaring examples of extreme homophobia, bigotry, anti-Semitism, racism, which actually do exist worldwide, that you think there's a disconnect there which has put other people off and is like alienating the other side of the debate? Or do you think it's more of a fundamental issue just in terms of incompatibility of values between things like being vaguely nationalist and being internationalist or a blend of both? I mean, it's, it's got to be a, a mixture of both. I think the fascinating case of some of the Birmingham um, school protests yeah. really puts it out there because there's a lack of willingness to acknowledge uh, the, the reason for those protests is, is underlying um, quite religious. Um, Douglas Murray will, will point out the fact that um, London is actually more homophobic than the rest of the country because there's a lot of immigrants in London and people come from places that yeah. aren't necessarily 
um, exposed to liberal ideas and liberal values, and, and they arrive they arrive here in the UK and they come to, to work, and that's fantastic. Yep. But they, we have to acknowledge the fact that just because someone's immigrant doesn't mean that they necessarily have the similar kind of cultural liberal set of values. Mm. I'm pretty pro-immigration, but I think it's just something you've got to acknowledge sits out there. Um, I, I don't think there's a willingness on the left to acknowledge those potential contradictions in their, in their goals. I mean, another classic contradiction when it comes to the left is that in order to have a successful welfare state, you need a general sense of shared identity. And if you, in fact, um, the most successful welfare states, one could argue, particularly with um, tax and transfer, are some of the Scandinavian countries, which have been extremely homogeneous um, for, for a, a most of their history until probably very recently when they've had inflows of migrants. So you, that kind of unity of purpose and message is actually necessary to, to make the kind of left-wing worldview work properly. Yeah. I mean, in terms of where this is going in terms of these identity issues, I worry that the excessive focus on them actually undermines all the success we've achieved. So if you look at something like racial politics, if you're just obsessively talking about racial politics forever and ever and ever, you're telling white people that they're inherently racist because they're white, you're inherently homophobic, inherently colonialist, and even if you know, you had literally nothing to do with any of that history whatsoever, you are personally responsible for it. Um, first of all, you're going to get a backlash from, from white people, you're going to get a rise in, in the far right because they're going to feel a need to defend themselves. This is, this is the basics of tribal uh, politics 101, and there's, there's been a lot of academic research on this, that the more you present racial issues, the more racialized society comes, the more conflict you have between different racial groups. Yeah. Um, I'm more or less subscribed to the Martin Luther King point of view, which is I want to judge people by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. And I, I think that's a goal to aim towards. The problem these days is that that's actually not even the goal of people who are anti, so-called anti-racist. They actually want to re-racialize society and focus on race and talk about race and think about race Constantly, and you can never get out of that. If once you once you walk into this trap and you create that opposition, imagine you're a kid who comes from um, a relatively rural area in Britain. You come to work in London, and you're expected to have this um, certain worldview and certain perspective on things, and your certain way to talk about certain issues. And if you don't fulfil that, you can't go anywhere. And it's it's just a total mess. Um, people are walking into a minefield, and then often choose not to talk about or engage with or think about it in any meaningful way. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I mean, I also think it makes it quite difficult to think clearly about these issues and actually to remember why it is that you've been, for example, opposed to racism throughout the course of your life, let's say. If you've got a situation where... So, for example, I would be... I've been considering myself to be quite pro-immigration in general. I'm from a historically immigrant Jewish family... I would never want to make immigrants feel uncomfortable in the country or make the argument that immigration is a bad thing. But when you get to the point where any discussion of any limit on immigration at all is then deemed to be as bad, almost, as saying you hate immigrants, it becomes really difficult to have a rational debate. And I think the vast majority of people who look into that discussion from the outside who aren't necessarily unbelievably well-versed in these things might come away from that thinking, okay, I know I should be unbelievably uncritically pro everything to do with immigration with no qualms about it, but personally I don't feel like that. And therefore they just come away with a kind of sense of confusion and actually no commitment to the reasons that there are benefits to immigration, for example. Or you can say that about anti-racism. You can be committed to anti-racism, but then if you say anything which doesn't toe a particular kind of critical race theory postmodernist line on the need for identity politics in public discourse, let's say, or intersectionality or anything like that, or the hierarchy of different forms of oppression which you get nowadays in a lot of discussion. You come away thinking that it's not clear why 
the things you thought you subscribed to so strongly are now seen as part and parcel of a racist worldview. So I think that's part of what's making things confusing nowadays. You know, this is why I'm a liberal when it comes to, to free speech. Yeah. Is that I think the best way to make an argument and make a case for something that is a, a good principle is actually to have that debate in the first place. Um, there's a lot of uh, bans, let's say, particularly in, in continental Europe about um, Holocaust denial and anti-Semitism and, of course, all terrible things to say, do, think, etc. But when you try to ban these ideas, they don't disappear, particularly in the internet age. Ideas will just go underground and fester if you're not actually having the debate in the public out in the open. I think the same thing about immigration. People are, if you can't have a serious debate about the costs and benefits of immigration, I think the benefits are there. They're quite clearly shown, particularly when you look at the contribution immigrants make society, culturally and economically. I think that the benefits are all there, but if you can't have that debate in response to people who are more sceptical of immigration, who genuinely believe that, if you're not exposed to those ideas, then you have very shallow understandings of the world. So to build that deeper understanding, we need to be able to have those debates. And I think we can get somewhere in those debates as well, where people come to accept um, certain things they might otherwise be predisposed not to. Um, when you explain what the benefits are of immigrants, and, you know, in fact, they're not taking your jobs because that's a lump, la- um, lump labour fallacy. Yeah. Because if because they actually, by coming into the workforce, earning money and then spending it, actually create more jobs and increase productivity and share ideas. And you can, you've got to be able to make that case. And if you, because you prevent debate on the, that particular case and you're never actually able to do it, you're going to have problems when you when you actually do face opposition to it which does eventually come out yeah no i mean so on that theme we've saw in the last general election the general election before that and in the whole brexit debate and also kind of in america and across the west there's this reference back constantly to fascism and that is something which as an anti-fascist but as most pretty much everyone in society is an anti-fascist but as someone who's obviously opposed to fascism i actually have quite significant concerns about that in the sense that if you if you were born in let's say 2000 and so you were 18, 19 now and you saw prominent politicians saying that there are fascistic elements to Boris Johnson or saying that Brexiteers are um, as bad as fascists like what you see people like David Lammy and Jess Phillips come out with these statements you would not have any reason to think that what happened under fascism was significantly different to what's happening now but actually fascism is a historically specific very brutal form of government which we need a specific vocabulary to refer to and I think there's that kind of devaluing of these really profound terms like fascism racism and they're being used as a way of scoring kind of political or ideological points in a way which isn't actually appropriate and the terms themselves are coming devalued but uh, devalued but is that something which you would consider a concern as well or is it something which you can kind of understand why people are doing it because they might have their concerns about racism so they just assert the most powerful argument they possibly can from the get-go. What's your view on that? So it's a bit of the boy who cries wolf sometimes. If you're calling everyone a fascist, then when the actual fascist shows up, it's much harder to identify them and and describe their characteristics. Um, I think the the overuse of, you know, there's just this negative undertone. Whenever you say someone is right-wing or... the undertone is effective that they're basically a fascist. That's it's more or less what people are really thinking when they use that phrase. Um, and then when they say far right, it's definitely fascist. And when they say fascist, as they do overuse, I think it's just a way to try to shut down debate and rather than engage 
with the serious issues that the people might want to raise about something like immigration, yeah. just to call them all, all, all simply fascist when that isn't their disposition at all. Yeah. Um, this it, is just quite ridiculous. And I think we, we do need to, I think you can play right there, that we do need to have this special vocabulary to describe a particular line of thought of people who, who identify as fascists. I don't think it's a lot of people, but there are fascists out there. There are yeah, a definitely. small minority of people who, who do hold extremely racist, mm. white supremacist views. They exist in their small numbers in America. They deserve the right to free speech as much as anyone else does, so we can all laugh at just how small, weak and pathetic they are. Yeah. And then we can say, well, of course, most people think there's nothing wrong with someone on the basis of their race or of course anti-Semitism is completely unacceptable and, and that there are people who, who hate Jews and, and that's awful and that's something terrible and let's expose that and um, get that out there. An interesting issue at the moment in uh, my state of Victoria, the Victorian Liberal Party, so the centre-right, um, have come out and said they want to put forward legislation to ban the swastika so you can't use that symbol. Kind of like not too dissimilar to what, what Germany has. I, I don't think once again just trying to using the government to ban a certain thing you dislike gets rid of it so just yeah. because people it will be technically illegal to use swastikas people are probably going to go around even more actively in graffiti swastikas because now they know it's a sign of rebellion and against the the state and it's a, it's a way to expose their ideas um it's not going to make anyone less fascist yeah the, the number of fascists there are is extremely extremely low they've never been violent in australia there's it's just a, basically a, a really a non-issue that police to monitor them carefully um, but it's the far right is just not a huge thing in Australia yeah. um, they, they try to and this is, this is where sometimes think we do have to be careful and people on the right I think we have to be careful is the far right will try to infiltrate the centre right yeah. and they'll try to use a language often this is strategic they'll use a language that sounds like it's kind of reasonable enough um, and somebody who isn't racist might use a similar language. And you, you do have to be very careful about those people infiltrating yeah. kind of normal dialogue and, and hiding away their more extreme views that they might have expressed previously on some dark parts of the internet and certain forums. And they do have certain strategies to try to get public attention. I think that you have to be aware of. You have to identify people who are genuinely fascist, genuinely anti-Semitic, genuinely homophobic, and, and call that out every time you see it. Yeah. But not overuse it um, and not undermine those terms, which which I think for good reason are, are quite scathing when you use them against people yeah. by overusing them and just calling everyone something you dislike. Yeah, so, so I think this is so the, the one area I, I do vaguely, I'm not sure what my view is in this time libertarian debate about complete free speech, because I, I basically am in favour of free speech. Oh, I'm going to use the like famous but. However, I'm not kind of like really dogmatically committed to the idea that absolutely everything should be given airtime at, at all times if you see I mean so for example the example of Mein Kampf not being published in Germany for years I think it was published in Germany or in a number of places or kind of extreme yeah it's still illegal published in Germany it's still illegal right exactly or, or for kind of like jihadist literature which might not tell you how to make a bomb but it might give you kind of extreme jihadist worldviews. I am not um, like completely committed to the idea that you have to necessarily make them as available as other things but I'm also not strongly opposed to that. I've never really been able to make my mind up on that but I know a lot of libertarians kind of think quite differently yeah I think this is, this is one of those truly difficult questions when it comes to free speech and it always has been the most extreme ridiculous um, cases of jihadist material or Nazi material my view on this is and, and I do have a mixed photos about it as well is lean on the side of free speech and that's that's because I think that these are actually quite important documents to study, to understand. If you actually read Mein Kampf, and I've 
had done that. I remember it got set once as part of a university assessment to try to understand fascism. Yeah. You actually unpack just how ridiculous it is. You, you start to understand it, oh, yeah. and then you can respond to it. I, I don't think many people at Melbourne University's political um, ideologies class, when we were given Mein Kampf, actually said, yeah, that's me. I really like these, yeah. these ideas. It's just kind of a ranty nonsense. Yeah. I think the best is in fact, um, best... Um, way to respond to, to bad ideas is to expose them to sunlight, to disinfect them, to, to respond to them thoroughly. And the other point I'd make as well here is that in, in, in 2020, whether you like it or not, people are going to be able to access this material yeah, on, exactly. online. You can't remove every bit of content you might dislike. Even if you try, people will always be able to use proxies or be able to use other, other methods. Um, to try to access it. So ultimately, people are going to have access to this information. If more people have an understanding of information and idea of the arguments against it, I think it's quite important and quite powerful. So I think from just what it means to live in a liberal society, it means people should be able to express themselves, even be able to express bad ideas, should then have an opportunity to respond to them. Yeah. That doesn't mean the same is necessarily given them a platform. I mean, in some ways, I think it would be irresponsible uh, to give a Nazi a platform on a, on a major television channel, um, unless... Because that kind of gives them an equal weight to somebody perhaps putting them up against. Yeah. Um, unless you have an extremely good reason to do so. I, I think there are editorial choices to be made about who you give platform to. But government action, active government action to make a certain idea illegal, I, I don't think you can outlaw ideas. Ideas exist in our heads. They don't exist um, when they're expressed. And I don't think simply expressing an idea necessarily persuades people of it. In fact, the opposite can be true, particularly if you have an opportunity to respond to that bad idea. Yeah, I was sort of wait one more fun, one fun point, then we can move on to this very slightly different topic. But I just think that on that whole free speech, kind of no platforming fascist point, so I think there's a kind of niche debate about whether or not Mein Kampf should be legal. And it's not, as I said, it's not something I can be kind of passionately committed to one side on because it seems a bit depressing to spend ages arguing in favour yeah. of like legalising Mein Kampf. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I understand the impetus, which is the kind of like theoretical need for, to understand why free speech is also important. But what really confuses me, and also I think is alienating so many people at the moment, or this is my instinct, is the fact that... the. The term, as I said, the term fascist or Nazi, Nazism or comparisons with those beliefs will be used um, in relation to people who are basically in no way fascistic, but at the same time who, given the fact I've got a kind of liberal, progressive-ish disposition, I think in a vacuum I would disagree with them. So you might hear, for example, a Brexiteer talking about why he's in favour of nationalism or decreasing immigration. If I heard someone saying that in a pub, I might go up to them and say, I don't really agree with that. But what actually happens now is... Because you have a lot of fun in pubs, don't you? Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. <laughs> then I just get booted up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, like, I would say that, and then they... If you see it on the TV now, the instant response is to say, OK, that person is basically fascistic, which then means that from the kind of neutral perspective, your instinct is to push back against the person who's criticising that person for being something they're not, which makes it much harder to criticise their actual points, if you see what I mean. It's yeah. quite convoluted, but that's something I genuinely think is yeah, affecting yeah. It just, beca- it just becomes name-calling, and it's actually yeah. quite lazy as yeah. an argumentation technique. So rather than saying, Here are the, here's the case for immigration, here's the academic issue on it, here are some potential costs that we know exist. Um, there's some classic work from Putman about um, more immigrants move to a particular area, that'll lead to less cohesive social bonds, less social capital, and that can be a short-term effect of immigration. He still said immigration is overall a good thing, but we have to acknowledge some potential um, social causes, whilst the economic effects, I think, are overwhelmingly positive, and we can look at some of the specifics. But you lose the ability to have that debate, you lose any interest in that debate if all you're doing is saying, oh, you're just a fascist because you've said that you 
don't think that you should have limitless immigration from the EU. Yeah. Um, I, I think it very much undermines the, the kind of case in the first place and, yeah. and actually makes people quite hesitant and sceptical to express their views until it comes down to it at the ballot box and then they're quietly voting leave and you're like, oh, why are people voting leave? Maybe because they do have a different perspective on these issues. Maybe they are a little bit more sceptical of immigration from the EU. But you've never actually dealt with their concerns. Yeah. You've lost the debate. You've lost the argument because you chose not to engage with it. And you just, in the classic Hillary Clinton way, called them all a bunch of deplorables, and then you wonder why the deplorables didn't vote for you. Yeah, that's such a, that's such a consistent theme, I think, in progressive politics, is being surprised every time by the silent majority. Silent majority just giving you a kicking. Like, every <laughs> time there's an election, most of the society's thinking, I think that, for example, Corbyn is probably going to lose, and then when they lose, everyone's like, yeah, that's sort of what I thought was Shocking, yeah. And yeah. then the Corbynistas are saying, oh my God... I cannot believe this is I don't, happening. I don't want to live in this country anymore yeah. where people have a different perspective to me. It's just like, how did you not see? It's like, you may or may not be right politically, but just not being aware of yeah. the impact of what you're saying is I having on other people. It speaks to something deep, and it speaks to something deep, potentially in two ways here. One way is the sense in which people do live in these information bubbles. Often it can happen in reverse as well. Like yeah. you can, if you if you come from a certain town where everyone voted leave, you, the idea of these remain voters will seem totally foreign to you. Yeah. Just a completely different worldview, a different everyone is reinforcing it. Everyone at your dinner party is saying the same same thing. The one person with the alternative perspective might just be staying quiet. Yeah. Uh, there was a great article in the Spectator uh, this week, or so perhaps last week about the, the issue of dinner parties and how people have stopped hosting dinner parties because they don't want the, fru- the furious arguments about Brexit. Yeah. And then they have to split their dinner party invitations by those who are <laughs> Remainers and Leavers and not invite, invite, invite any Leavers because they'll just argue with the Remainers and become this heavily politicised thing. Yeah. There's a bit of hope in this article now that Brexit has happened, we could move on from that stage. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I don't get invited to enough London dinner parties to be able to comment Yeah, that um, must be why I never get invited to any dinner parties. Well, well clearly, clearly, we're, we're, not, um, we're not of the, the right worldview on the dinner party circuit yeah. um, in West London. London. So I, I think you have that, but also there's some, there's some interesting issues um, that John Hyatt unpacks in his Moral Foundations theory yeah. about the extent to which um, progressives and conservatives in American terminology, uh, or the liberals and conservatives, have just kind of a different moral foundation, different moral priorities. So you find that progressives prioritise things like caring and, and fairness, and, and they're all very good values, and conservatives will have those values as well, but the the conservatives also value things like lo- group loyalty. Um, sometimes, and particularly libertarians, will value something like freedom. Yeah. And because particularly liberals, people on the left, don't have any of those other moral foundations, they just don't see them as a, as important. They can't understand the priority which people will put on protecting the tribe and therefore being more. I'm skeptical of, of, of foreigners and foreign trade and, and need, feeling a need to protect their, their community. The progressive worldview just doesn't see that as a moral priority. All they have is caring and fairness. Yeah. Whilst conservatives often actually have a bit of kind of equal amount of each in some ways across these different moral foundations. So it's much harder for a progressive to get into the head of someone who's conservative because they just don't have um, that worldview, that yeah. disposition within them. But that's also partly because that particular brand, I think it's quite a modern thing, a modern brand of progressivism, well, I don't know what the best term is, but you could call it that, presents other viewpoints as just kind of either completely morally bankrupt or stupid. And so there's no attempt to appreciate the fact that you might not agree with it, but it's a kind of valid alternative set of beliefs. It's just you're taught from day one, anyone who thinks it's just evil or stupid or has been tricked by someone. Yeah, and I think think this this is a serious problem on the left, if they want to be politically viable, is that if, you, if you're not willing to accept the need to persuade people who have a different view and you're 
dismiss them, then why in the world are they going to vote for you? Why in yeah. the world are they going to they're going to come crawling back to you because you supposedly give them the solutions, but you clearly don't, and clearly not really speaking to them whatsoever. So basically, okay, so we've had a break. So something which you've spoken about is the fact that we are constantly being told that everything's getting worse or is very bad, but actually, in historical terms, we're living through one of the most incredible periods like, ever. Pretty much the most incredible period ever. So. Why is that? What, what do you mean by that? And why are we living through such negativity when actually things are going so well for so many people? Well, I think that's, that's a very good question and trying to unpack this. So the last decade was, by basically every measure, the, the best in human history. Yeah. Um, we had, just in, just in that time period, the number of people in extreme poverty um, has halved the proportion of, so from almost 20% to below, now below 10%. We've got more people who are nourished educated, um, as well as on top of that... Like literacy we, rates. Literacy rates. Child mortality rates. Child mortality Literally almost every measure you can, but also yeah. things you can't measure. So we have access to more information yeah. on our phones, more entertainment, more food, more food options. Literally, uh, a king or a queen 100 years ago can't access the entertainment or the lifestyle that basically the average plemp can today. Yeah. So in so many ways, the world is getting so much better than it ever has before. Even on, let's look at some of the left's favourite things like inequality. Global inequality has actually declined, particularly because of the rise of China and India. Um, the, the income differences are on their way down. That. But what we find is this underlying pessimism about the world. I think there's something about the human um, psyche that yeah. really causes this, which is to say... Um, our, our, you know, ancestors on the on the savannah weren't the ones who said, "Oh, everything's going to be fine." They're the ones who worried a little bit more. We got out of the way of that lion that was chasing them. So yeah. the the natural human survival instinct is to basically, particularly for for society at large and your own future, to be a little bit more pessimistic. But don't um, you think? Don't you think that's kind? Of, okay, so I hear that argument all the time. I understand. I think there's the people writing about that in like the 1800s, how things yeah. are actually getting better, and everyone was saying things are getting worse, Always, particularly yeah. like in the like the kind of romantic poets and so on. Yeah. But and so I understand that as a tenet of human nature, arguably. But it's much more concentrated or much more prevalent among kind of sections of the progressive left sphere. And I think it's kind of letting those that worldview off the hook a bit because it's without even noticing it, most people kind of have that feeling that because they're told so often that things might be getting worse. But that's because it's being pushed by a particular set of kind of a- activist, academic types who are really committed to presenting the system and the man as awful, when actually it's not. So do you not think there's a kind of broader ideological underpinning to that belief? I mean, I think it's a bit of both. I think they're speaking to something that is deep within us, this need to be pessimistic about the world and negatively viewing the world. Uh, there's a particular, you're completely right, there's a particular narrative um, that tries to justify that today and it's become quite widespread. You're going to mix something about inequality in the environment and climate change and say so basically the world's coming to an end. I, I, I don't think by saying that there's something human... This certain human disposition towards this, he puts them off, gets them off the hook. Either. I think plenty of people on the political right, and if you look at kind of Donald Trump's whole narrative, it wasn't America is great; it was make America great again. The perception yeah. that there was somehow this mythic past in which America was a better place to be, and I'm, I'm not clear to me at all that America was historically a better place to be, particularly yeah. if you're a minority, yeah. um, African American, or you were gay. The 1950s weren't exactly yeah, a great it's not time really for you. Um, so if you look at something like just taking the environmental stuff out. Because, so personally, I would be in favour of significant action on climate change. I still think a lot of the debate about that is beyond just a rational analysis of what's going on, which we should take very seriously, and actually becomes more of an ideological 
thing, which is to do with kind of challenging the nature of the system itself, which I'm quite worried by. Because again, like I was making that fascist point, it's blending two things. One of them is the important need to address issues, and the other one is just thinking that gives you free license to not use facts, which actually... Great, Greta, um, Greta Thunberg, in an, an opinion piece, co-written, mind you, so she probably didn't actually write it. Yeah. She used the line, uh, climate change isn't about the environment. It's like, well, then what is climate change about? And then yeah. she's starting to claim it's about colonialism or, or historical oppression or the capitalist system. And it's that point where you get this um, polarisation about climate change, particularly in the States, less so in the UK, particularly in the States and Australia, because people suddenly see climate change as this issue about um, traditional politics, whether or not you want a capitalist or social system. That doesn't mean that there's no role for government. I think there, there is a need to do action on climate change, and the UK is pretty much world-leading in this, particularly when it sets its goals, maybe not necessarily uh, achievable goals, but certainly sets its goals. Yeah. Um, but in the end, the only way we're going we're gonna to be able to fix these issues is not by destroying capitalism, it's by embracing the market's ability to be innovative and, and create extraordinary progress yeah. um, because we're going to need new technologies to maintain our standard of living and continue economic growth whilst using less emission-intensive techniques. Yeah. The good news is we're already on our way. So the global emissions intensity of the economy or the UK emissions intensity of economic output, we actually really are producing more with less emissions. So despite what Thunberg says, you know, your myths of eternal growth, that's the perception. It's actually a very simplistic way of looking at growth and, and a very wrong way of looking at growth. You don't get growth by using more resources. You get growth by being more productive, yeah. by using the resources better, by getting more from less. Yeah. And that's been our ability, particularly over the last 30 or 40 years, and that's where much of our prosperity has come from. And you need to unleash market forces to do that. So we have to be open to the kind of innovation that's going to be able to overcome the environmental challenges we face. Yeah. So we need to embrace the system we have and use it fully rather than trying to undermine it and destroy it. Oh, I agree with that very strongly. I mean, the main thing I think about this environmental issue is it puts me in a, well, it puts a lot of people, I think, in a really, really strange position because I don't, I, I'm concerned about it. I think action needs to be taken and I don't fully, there might be somewhere where we slightly differ, I don't fully trust kind of like the profit motive in and of itself to necessarily solve something like that because I think that if you were just looking to make money, you might just keep making really dirty cars, for example. Now, I do agree there's probably a role um, for intervening in the market. And you effectively got two ways to do it. You can do it a regulatory method. Now, I was on a panel the other day, and the person sitting next to me said, we should use regulation rather than uh, taxes to try to incentivize positive environmental behavior. And he said, regulation doesn't cost anything. Now, if you look at anyone's um, electricity bills over the last 10, 20 years, you're going to find that the regulation that's pushed towards renewable energy, it's actually costs a lot. And yeah. there, there are huge costs of regulation. It just hides the cost. It doesn't get rid of the cost. It hides and spreads the cost. I think, and it, quite frankly, it's not as efficient um, because re regulation is effectively picking winners. Um, I'm personally quite sympathetic to the idea of a carbon tax because I think that effectively responds to the issue you've got, which is, okay, the market might not necessarily price the externality, the externality is those carbon emissions, yeah. there's a certain cost to, to that. A carbon price, and there's been some good work, very good work done on this by uh, the Nobel Prize winner a few years ago, um, was Romer's did a major study on this as well, one of the things he won his Nobel Prize for in economics, um, was the fact that you can, once you price the externality, you disincentivize it and you encourage the innovation. Yeah. So you encourage better behaviour as a result of taking into account the cost of it and the development of technologies that are increasingly less carbon intensive. So you move naturally from coal to gas and then I think in the longer run there's some role for um, renewables like solar um, and wind but more so even nuclear as well and then you encourage the development of fusion energy 
potentially solve all our energy issues. So the, the tax is potentially necessary there, that government intervention is necessary uh, potentially to, to push the market in the right direction. It doesn't mean throwing away the market system, it means just being smart about how yeah, you intervene. Using it in the right way, yeah, exactly. But I mean, another thing which is related to that though is that there's this kind of anti-technological, anti-progress disposition or viewpoint which underpins a lot of the environmental movement and the fact that so okay i would personally be i am actually quite worried about climate change and i would like to see significant action taken to stop it but there's almost no green movement i can see that i could get on board with which wouldn't also include vast numbers of people who subscribe to basically completely irrational beliefs to do with things like um the innate harm of technological development and yeah. the fact that humans are kind of so greedy that we can't stop just consuming things and destroying everything around us when actually if you look at what's happened over the course of human history as we've got more technologically capable the quality of life for everyone alive has become almost exponentially better yeah. so there's my great concern is about that because i think there's also this kind of just really anti-humanist underpinning to a lot of that um, i think i think that's absolutely right and also i mean you can even see that with things like You'll have schemes, I think Prince Charles headed up was part of, where they subsidised basically Indian peasant farmers to continue their traditional farming methods. Yeah, by paying awful them. for the environment, yeah. Yeah, and it's, like, it's bad for the environment, and also it's just awful for the farmers themselves to be paid to continue doing kind unbelievably manually a, intensive labour. A subsistence-style Instead of doing yeah. things like giving them... You could use that money to provide them with a environmentally friendly tractor which might do the same amount of work as an entire village I mean they can spend more time with their kids or yeah. afford medicine so it's, it's like, I mean that's just kind of quite frankly just anti-industrialisation yeah. I can't see Prince Charles going back and going back to the farm and making his own food so of course yeah. it's complete hypocrisy it's, to, think yeah. that, to think that these poor Indian farmers have to stay poor and on the farm forever and what we know about agriculture is that the bigger the farm the more efficient it is the less environmental impact it has the more the, the less land fuel pesticides it uses to produce more um Eric Lisa who's one of the uh, is a Harvard economist one of the world's leading urban economists makes the point that um building size skyscrapers is the best thing you can do for the environment because city dwellers we use less space we have le a substantially less environmental footprint more likely to use public transport we're not kind of traveling great distances in cars um and we're having a much less footprint on the, on the world as a result of living in cities. Yeah. So you don't want to encourage people to live out in out in regional areas where they where they're using up a lot of resources. You actually, want to encourage people to live in cities where they can earn more money. Yeah. And they can be a lot better off. Yeah. And it's all. I mean, also a lot of that environmental kind of outlook is based on just a factually inaccurate understanding of what's actually happening. So. With good reason, people will look at the news about things like hurricanes hitting specific places or rising sea waters leading to flooding and so on and think that vast, vast numbers of people are dying as a result of natural disasters. And obviously, people dying as a result of natural disasters is bad, but by basically every metric, the number of people dying by as a result of natural yeah. disasters has increased massively. Yeah, so it's about the number of people dying from natural disasters is down something like 99.9%. And yeah. that, that's largely because we're more prosperous. 99.9% less. 99.9% .9 fewer people compared yeah, yeah. to about 100 years ago with yeah, exactly, yeah. disasters. Usually it'd be tens of thousands, 100,000 people. So we've got to be careful. So we could completely stop um, a lot of places from being out from emitting carbon emissions. You could, you could say, it's many places in Southeast Asia or in Africa, no, 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 you, you can't um, industrialise in the same way that we have in the West. We don't want you to have cheap, accessible energy, which is provided by coal. It's just the reality is that's the cheapest and easiest energy yeah. um, source, at least at the moment. We're not going to let you do that. We're not going to let you become rich. We're not going to let you become prosperous. 
ultimately climate change might even be much worse for them as a result because you won't manage to fully stop climate change, yeah. but they'll have far less ability to respond to the effects of climate change if you're much, much poorer. So we've got to build the wealth and prosperity at the same time as trying to reduce emissions. I think that's definitely possible, but at the very least, the prosperity enables us to deal with the consequences. So we can't stop us from getting to that prosperous society or can't stop other people from becoming prosperous like we are yeah. um, because you're concerned about climate change. We're not going to be any better off in the end. Yeah, that's definitely an important point, I think. So related to that, um, I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on the way in which inequality globally is discussed and also the point we've reached technologically and developmentally. So the, in my opinion, something you hear much more than you should is about how awful it is that things are so bad globally without any wider context being given about how much more incredible things have got in the last yeah. 30 years. I think the last, like you said, the last 10 years are basically the most incredible ten like decade of development there's ever been. And the last 40 years has been unprecedented. Yeah. And the last 200 years has been unprecedented in terms of how much people stand We've, we've gone from effectively 95% of the population in extreme poverty to less than yeah. 10% over the last 200 years. It's extraordinary progress. And I think the debate we've had to have, and this comes back to organisations that are set up for a particular purpose at a particular time and then have to justify the continuing existence of the crisis that they were established for. I think Oxfam is probably a case of this. Yeah, well, Oxfam, Oxfam needs to make as much of a constant crisis as it constantly can. So it puts out these absolutely nonsense annual statistics about, um, about wealth. So the Oxfam statistics basically have a, a, a metric of net wealth. It means that if you're a recent Harvard graduate with 100 and $10,000 worth of debt, you're actually in the bottom 10% of the world because of, of global wealth because you've actually got this huge amount of net debt. Well, if you're a poor Chinese farmer who doesn't have any debt, you're probably in the top um, 80% because, right. because you don't have a net negative wealth. So it's a completely meaningless statistic because it completely flips up. I mean, literally, wealth inequality tells you nothing about income inequality, which is, again, declined, as I was saying earlier. But it just tells you nothing about people's quality of life and whether or not more people are being lifted out of poverty than before. People have had to focus in on inequality because poverty is declining. They need to find more or less something else to talk about yeah. um, in order to justify the existence. And Oxfam needs to justify... And I think Oxfam has historically done fantastic work um, addressing true poverty and, and trying to help people. But what's ultimately proven more effective is just trade as a and economic development, is people get richer by building liberal institutions, things like the rule of law and, and property rights and allowing people to specialise trade, get off um, the lonely life of a farmer um, in a, at a small scale is not producing very much and then going working in a factory and then ultimately moving from factories into cities and, and becoming an industrial economy and then a post-industrial economy. That's how you develop. It's not just by being given a little bit extra by uh, Westerners every once in a while to build a well in your in your town. Some of it is necessary as a premise for economic development and ensuring that um, I think the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation do fantastic work in, in tackling specific issues. Like the, their biggest thing was they found that um, people malaria is a huge issue. Let's give people nets and, and that'll enable them to live longer. So there, yeah. there's not no role whatsoever for aid and philanthropy and trying to help the world. But the, creating that great prosperity takes that industrial market process to build up people's wealth. And we've really seen a lot of this. We've seen a lot of this in China, which has managed to, um, by itself, decrease the amount of people in extreme poverty by uh, 600 million people in the last 20, 30 years. We've seen, starting to see this more and more in Africa, where the news, d despite the historical worldview, you know, um, live Africa and, and, and Africa aid and all that kind of perspective, is actually getting much wealthier and much more liberal at 
the same time, and it's no coincidence that as the African Union um, puts in place greater free trade, basically tries to create a bit of a free trade area, that people become richer in that area. It's just the the, the natural um, rules of, of development. Yeah. So, I mean, this will probably be, we may as well make this more or less the final point, but one thing I was going to say is I think that all those points you make apply even on an individual level. Basically, <laughs> I was super left, shifted away from that. So I now kind of don't really have a strong ideological position. But what I do find incredible is the belief on the left that anyone who isn't of that perspective must basically be greedy or not understand what's going on. But actually, probably the number one reason why I moved away from being completely wedded to being left-wing was the fact that I realised that humanity was doing unbelievably well by basically any measure compared to how it's done at any point in its history. And that was something I wanted to see continue and thought about in a very positive way. And so I wasn't completely committed to the fact that we had to overturn the current system. When I try and present that fact to many people on the left, it would just be treated as if I'd said something which made no sense, and then they'd go back to saying, oh, the system's awful, the system's awful. And it was that disconnect which really moved me away. I mean, is that something you find you come up against quite a lot, I guess, working with the Adam Smith Institute? I mean, it is, it is just very hard to, to establish what the facts are. So yeah. I go around, as with the ASI, we have a big educational program where we go, go into schools um, all over the UK. We were in Northern Ireland late last year talking to kids from both sides of the border, yeah. connecting people. And I, the, my usual presentation I give is um, why everything is awesome. And it's just the level of shock when you even speaking to kind of politics and economics students, when you try and give them an optimistic message, because yeah. they just put down their throats every day in the media, every day at school, that everything is going terribly, that the world is, is awful. And just trying to kind of reset their minds and say, um, something happened 200 years ago. Um, uh, Eugene McCloskey talks about um, the hockey stick. Everything just suddenly went up. Um, and then trying to understand that and why that has happened is just, in my head, the key question of economics, the key question of social science, yeah. is to understand what changed 200 years ago. Um, and you can make some arguments about that, about the, whether or not it was ideas, as McCloskey was saying, just kind of even postmodernist, libertarian, or is it something about uh, industry and, and trade and, and pure mechanics, or is it just legal rights, or is it some kind of mix of all these things? Trying to answer that question and, and then try to understand the prosperous society we live in should be what we're effectively constantly talking about and arguing about. But the lack of willingness to just accept the premise that things have gotten better yeah. and trying to just purely focus on things that um, even in a, often very biased, using very biased statistics in your worldview aren't going better, I think does public debate a great disservice. Yeah, I agree so strongly with that. Uh, that's probably a good point to end. Thank you very much. All right, thanks a lot. It's been fun. Thanks yeah. for having me.